Well, Genesis 46, you'll remember that Jacob has uh, come to the conclusion that he's got to go to Egypt. And last time we were looking at uh, Jacob, he was incredibly scared, he was frightened, and God showed up to Jacob and told him, Jacob, I know where you're at. I know you by name, know everything about you. And I'm leading you into Egypt according to my purposes, and I will be with you. And so Jacob, having heard from God that God knows him, that God is with him, sets out towards Egypt. And I can imagine he's still very much afraid. He knows that God is with him, but he's afraid. This little group of people, about 70, moving into this huge nation known as Egypt with this guy named Pharaoh. I'm sure that it was incredibly scary. And at the back of Jacob's mind, I'm sure that to some extent, he was remembering Shechem. You remember, he went to Shechem. Now, in that instance, he was disobedient to God. He didn't go as far as God had called him to go. And he stayed in Shechem in this very pagan system. And what happened? He got sucked into that culture and it chewed him up and it spit him out and it almost destroyed his family. And so I I would imagine he's thinking back to that experience as he heads off towards Egypt and he's wondering, God, how in the world are we going to stay faithful to you in the midst of this pagan Egyptian culture? And what's amazing is what we're going to find out that on the basis of God's faithfulness and his grace and his word, not only will Jacob and Israel survive the Egyptian culture, they're going to thrive. They're going to thrive for the glory of God. And the question is, how'd they do it? Because if you're reading this like I'm reading this, this is pretty relevant for us today. Amen? That we're living in increasingly a a godless society, a godless culture. I say in many regards we're no longer in a post-Christian world. We're moving increasingly forward and towards an anti-Christian world. And the question is, how do we survive? Is it possible to cling to God's world or God's word and God's mission and survive in an evil and wicked day? And what we see here in the example of Jacob and Israel is that it's not just possible to survive. It's God's intention that we thrive, that we make an impact for the glory of God in the midst of the day we live. So how do we do it? I think Jacob and Israel are going to give us some key principles on how we thrive in the midst of our, our day. So with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll, we'll look at some of these chapters here. Father, we thank you so much for your word that speaks so relevantly to our lives. And God, we thank you for the example of of Jacob and Israel and this little budding nation as they go into a very dark and pagan and godless culture. And God, I'm thankful that they show us here some principles that are keys to surviving in that world and in our world today. So God, uh, open our eyes to the clear principles of this text and help us to apply them to our lives that we might not simply be hearers of the word, but doers also. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, look with me, Genesis 46, pick up in verse 28. We'll, We'll read into chapter 47, but pick up in verse 28 of chapter 46. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen, and Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. 
And then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up to Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of the livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Chapter 47, then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh said to his brothers, uh, what is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land and let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So we see here that as Israel and Jacob begin to move into Egypt, Joseph has a very specific goal. And his goal is that I'd settle my family in the land of Goshen. We got to get them into Goshen. But in order to do that, he has to gain permission from Pharaoh. So he coaches his brothers up on what to say. They're to, to tell Pharaoh that they're shepherds, that they're keepers of livestock. In, in other words, he's telling them, don't try to impress Pharaoh by telling him you're something that you're not. Just be honest and tell him that you're, that you're shepherds. And the purpose is very specific in verse 34, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. He's letting his brothers know that, that Pharaoh will not think highly of your occupation because the Egyptians uh, didn't care for shepherds. But he said that's okay because hopefully it will result in you being able to be settled in the land of Goshen. And sure enough, what happens, they get to settle in the land of Goshen. Now here's the question. Why would Joseph want to keep his family in the land of Goshen? Why is he so specific? Why is he so adamant that they remain in Goshen? I believe it's because Jacob knew or Joseph knew that if they settle in the capital of Egypt, if they immerse themselves in Egyptian culture, they'll get sucked in. He knew Egyptian culture. He knew how alluring it could be. He also knew his family. And Joseph knows if they're going to thrive as the people of God in the midst of this Egyptian culture, they must remain distinct. No matter how bad the ridicule, no matter how alluring the Egyptian culture might be, they must remain set apart. They must remain distinct. So the primary key to thriving in Egypt for Israel was that they were in Egypt, but they were also separate from Egypt. They lived very distinct lives in the midst of a pagan world. That we are, in their mind, we're the people of God. We have a different identity Therefore, we live differently. We are set apart. We are holy unto God for his purposes and his glory. And really, this is the first principle, the first key to surviving in a pagan world is that you must be distinct. 
You must be set apart. You must be holy. That's what set apart is in both the Old Testament, the New Testament, Greek, or Hebrew. To be set apart is to be holy. And Jesus said in John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. For they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify, just the verb form of holy. You see, Jesus' primary prayer for us is that in the midst of this pagan and fallen world, you'd have this little group of people who are set apart unto God for his purposes and for his glory. As Peter said it in 1 Peter 1, 9, that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That if we are going to survive, and and not just survive, but thrive in the midst of this world for the glory of God, we must remain distinct and holy. But the problem is, for American Christianity, it has become very difficult to see any real difference between the believer and the non-believer. In many ways, we have lost our holiness, we have lost our distinctiveness, and therefore we have lost our effectiveness. In fact, you remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said that you're the salt of the earth. Salt in the Old Testament was, uh, in, in a religious sense, was symbolic of holiness. It was also a preserver. What Jesus was saying when he said we're the salt of the earth, we're to be the holiness of God in this world that prevents the decay and the decline of our culture. And what he goes on to say is if if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's good for nothing except to be trampled underfoot by men. You know what he's saying? He's saying if you lose your distinctiveness, if you lose your holiness, you lose your effectiveness. And in many ways, we've lost our holiness, we've lost our distinctiveness, and therefore we've lost our effectiveness. And I think for two two primary reasons. Number one, we've compromised on the word of God. The, The world and our culture has challenged us on the truthfulness, the validity, and the relevancy of the word of God. And in far too many churches and in far too many places, we've caved. We've trimmed the sails, hoping that we would gain popularity with the world around us and attract bigger crowds, and the tactic always backfires. No church, no denomination, and no people can expect the blessings of God when they back away from the Word of God. And secondly, not only have we compromised biblically, but we've compromised morally. We have produced what I like to call carnal Christianity. We have developed a brand of Christianity that makes very little difference in a person's life. That you can accept Jesus Christ, get some eternal life insurance, and then go on and live however you want to live. To the extent that in many situations you can take a professing Christian and a non-believing pagan and line them up side by side and discern no difference apart from occasional worship attendance. And that is a version of Christianity that has lost its distinctiveness, its holiness, and therefore its effectiveness. And here's the deal. If we're going, if we're going to thrive in this world, then the world must see that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes a difference in our lives. So let me just ask you a question right here. In what ways are you distinct from your neighbors, your coworkers, and your friends? In what ways would your friends, your coworkers, and your neighbors consider you odd because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes an effect in your life? 
When was the last time anyone ever asked you, why in the world do you live the way that you live? The gospel must make a difference. We must be holy. We must be set apart and distinct. Now, as we, we talk about this, I, I want to remind you, because a lot of people, when they think of holiness, they have a lot of negative connotations. They think of, uh, of maybe some form of legalism or a dress code. Let me just tell you what, what holiness is not. Number one, holiness does not mean that we hole up in a monastery. And, and this, is a real, this is a real fear of mine for us as Christians that as things begin to grow dark, we just hole up in our little homes and our little communities and we'd never want to touch a non-believer for fear that they might infect us. Folks, we got to have relationships with non-believers. If you don't have at least three people in your life right now that you're having conversations with who don't know Christ, you need to find three people. Because that is part of our mission. That is part of our calling. Now, let me tell you the danger. The danger is if your relationship with a non-believer begins to affect you more than you're affecting them, then you probably need to separate yourself. But we need to have, we cannot hole up, we cannot isolate. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to live in the world and have conversations, but not be stained by the world. So it doesn't mean that we hole up in a monastery. Secondly, holiness is not about a set of rules. It's not about a dress code. Holiness is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. That through faith in Jesus Christ, I have been propositionally and constitutionally changed. I have been born again. I'm not who I was. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a child of God. I'm an ambassador of Christ. I'm dead to sin and alive to God. That is who I am. I have a new identity. And out of that new identity comes new activity. Identity always drives activity, meaning because we are a new creation through faith in Christ, we don't do what we used to do because we're not who we used to be. So holiness does not begin with a set of rules. Holiness begins with a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, whereby, whereby I'm reborn again into a new way of life, acting in new and different ways. It's one of the fun parts of talking to a new believer in Jesus Christ. And oftentimes you talk to a new believer and they'll start telling you, hey, I was reading, this is my favorite part, I was reading in God's word yesterday morning. And I always will stop a new believer and I'll say, listen, prior to faith in Christ, did you know a moment where you got up and you had a desire to read God's word? And every time they'll say, not, no, not, not once. That is a new desire that God has placed in them because they're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Not only do they not, oftentimes they have a desire for the word of God, they start to have this desire to be around other believers. They long for fellowship and community. And then they long for prayer. And then they start acting differently. And, and on, on the converse side of that, when a new believer comes to faith in Christ, oftentimes there's a lack of a desire for the things that they used to do. And when they're tempted to do them and they engage in them, they don't bring the fulfillment that they used to bring and they experience something called conviction and they repent of it and they turn back to Christ. That is what it means to be holy. It means to be born again, a new creation with a new set of values and a new way of life. And so we're called to be holy. We're, we're called to be distinct. If we're, if we're going to thrive, we must be. And then look down in, in, in chapter 47, verses 7 through 10. It says, Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? 
So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of those, their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Folks, what, what Jacob does here is amazingly bold. He stands in the presence. His son is introducing him to the most powerful man in the world. And listen, when you enter into the presence of a man with that kind of authority and that kind of power, you tend to lose your boldness. I mean, I have met individuals who had the opportunity to meet various presidents over the years. And they said, oftentimes, I would go into that meeting and I have a list of things I was going to say. And then all of a sudden, you step into that Oval Office and you enter into the presence of that kind of authority and that kind of power. And all of a sudden, you go quiet real quick. And your boldness fades. Jacob here stands in the presence of a guy no, nobody bows to Pharaoh. He does whatever he wants to do, and he will cut your head off if he's having a bad day. And Jacob is a nobody. He probably smells like sheep. Pharaoh's probably holding his nose. I, the, I love to picture this in my mind. I just picture Pharaoh in all his garb, and, and this is just the way. I think of, of, of Jacob as standing there in overalls, you know? Here's this hick from Canaan, and you know what Jacob does? He looks, at, he looks at Pharaoh right in the eyes and says, I gotta pray for you. Now that's bold. I gotta bless you. And then Pharaoh tries to make some small talk. How old are you? You know, you just picture this. They're just like us. They're trying to make small talk. And Jacob says, listen, I'm not much, but I'm a child of God. And I don't, I don't have much, but that's okay because I'm not trying to make my home here because I'm not staying here. And by the way, Pharaoh, neither are you. I'm just passing through. But I need to pray for you and I need to bless you. And the, 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 greater, the greater always blesses the lesser. Do you see what Jacob is demonstrating here in this moment? Pharaoh, you may think you're great and grand, got all this power. But let me tell you something. I may not look like much, but I'm a child of God, and all the authority of heaven stands behind me in this moment as I declare to you, you need the blessing of God on your life or you're in trouble. Folks, that's boldness. And if we're going to thrive in the midst of the culture and the day in which we're living, God must give us boldness so that when the opportunities arise and the doors open and you're presented with an opportunity, listen, we're not seeking to be mean. We're not trying to be arrogant. You, you, you. See, no arrogance in Jacob in this moment. It's just the guy who knows this guy needs the blessing of God on his life. See, we're not seeking to be mean or arrogant, but when the opportunity arises and when the things of God are necessary and when the gospel opportunity is right there, we don't bat an eye and we don't back down. We say to that person, I don't care who they are. I may not look like much, but I'm a child of God, and all the authority of God's word in heaven stands behind me. I need to tell you today, you are a lost sinner apart from faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to hell, and you need the blessing of God on your life through faith in Jesus Christ. And, you know, the danger is we get in these, some of these situations, because I've been there too, and all of a sudden we get what I like to call paralysis of the tongue. <laughs> and we go silent. We got to be bold. I, every, <laughs> I read this, and I think of one of my favorite stories of Paul. Paul, when he stands before Agrippa, you remember this? Acts 26, he's standing before Agrippa. And, and what does he do? Agrippa's an incredibly powerful guy. For all Paul knows, this guy's gonna determine whether he is dead or alive or where he goes. 
and Paul is given that opportunity, and what does he do? He testifies to the gospel of grace that's transformed his life. And Agrippa stops and says, Paul, in such a short amount of time, do you think you're going to convert me to Christianity? And Paul says, you're doggone right I am. That's the Greek. That's what it says. Doggone right. You bet I am. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. He says, short time or long time, I don't care how long it takes. I'll stand here as long as you want. But my desire is that you become like me in every way except these chains. That you'd come to know the Jesus that I know and have the life that I have. That's what you call boldness. That when the lights are on, the time is to shine, you don't back down, you don't bat an eye. You're not mean, you're not arrogant, but you need to know Jesus because he's the only hope you have of making it through the judgment that's about to come. God help us to be bold. You know, I, I just heard a story the other guy, day. A guy, he... he uh, uh, Started playing soccer. He was looking for something to do, stay in shape. He joined the soccer team. He knows Christ. He's a Christian. He joins the soccer team. He's playing with these guys. One day, they go to practice. One of the guys that he's playing soccer with comes to him and says, hey, you need to know. I got to tell you something happened really, really significant in my life. A co-worker invited me to church. I came to know Jesus. I, I, I met this guy named Jesus. He has changed my life. I just, you're one of my, my, one of my friends. I need to tell you about it. And this guy looked at him and said, hey, that's so exciting. Praise God. I'm a Christian too. And this guy looked at him and said, you knew Christ and you didn't tell me? You knew Jesus and the hope of heaven and you never, you never opened your mouth? Do you really even care about me? Folks, who around you in your life today doesn't even know you're a Christian? Who around you today doesn't know Christ and you've never told them about the hope of heaven in Jesus Christ? Oh, God, give us boldness in the days that are growing dark and the time is short. we got to be bold. Then, then look at chapter 47, verse 27. Let me just give you some, we're, we're running through some of this here. But what happens in chapter 47 leading up to verse 27 is that the famine gets more and more severe. So things are growing worse and worse and worse. It's growing darker and darker and darker. Food is running out. And so the Egyptians, they have to come to Joseph. And they come to Joseph to buy food. And then their money runs out. they got no more money. So then they come to Joseph and they bring their livestock and say, now we got livestock and they, he gives, Joseph gives them some food. Then they run out of livestock and they start giving their land away. He gives, they give, give all their land away and then they got nothing else. So what do they give away? They give away themselves. They become slaves under Pharaoh. So in the midst of a dark day, the Egyptian culture is just going down and down and down. And then look in verse 27 of chapter 47. It says, now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. So the Egyptian culture is going down, but Israel, Israel is thriving. And uh, they're thriving in a physical way. But I, I think the, the, the broader principle here is that when the times are the darkest, that's when the people of God shine the brightest. When the times are the darkest, that is when the people of God shine the brightest. This is really your third key. When things get dark, when the world is going down, the people of God shine. Now, there has never been a more prosperous Christian. Think about this for just a moment. There's never been a more prosperous Christian in the history of the world than the American Christian. Never been a more prosperous Christian in the history of the world than the American Christian. All the prosperity, but here's the deal, all the prosperity of our world and our culture has not made us more effective at our gospel mission. In fact, I would say that it has made us less effective. 
in a world, think about this, in a world of poverty and hunger, you know what the problem of the American Christian is? We don't have enough garage space, and we're always on a diet. Why? Because we got too much stuff, and we're eating too much food. All the prosperity that we have experienced has caused us to worry more about the color of the granite in our kitchen than the lost condition of our neighbor next to us. You know, the church in Asia, it's against the law to preach the gospel. Pastors there know, they know they will be jailed for preaching the gospel, and guess what? They do it anyway. They plan for it. They tell their families, hey, we're going to preach the gospel. Good chance today. I'm not coming home. That's okay. I'll be in jail. I'll preach the gospel there. I'll get out. We'll do this deal all over again. They plan for it. In fact, they will tell you in Asia, they will tell you that people who do not share the gospel, they'll just say they're not Christians. One pastor, he was released from jail. He said, the more they persecute us, the more we flourish. One church, they have to start more services. They were up to five services. Guess what they had? In the midst of persecution, guess what they got? They got a growth problem. They, had to, they got five services. Then they, 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 started, they ran out of time to do services, and they started telling the people, what you got to do is you come one Sunday, and then you stay home the next Sunday to make room for new people that are coming and people who don't know the Lord. So one Sunday off, one Sunday on, just like here in America, only, only for different reasons, but we won't talk about that. But now I've gone to meddling, all right? I won't do that. But here's the reality. Here, here's, listen to me. I truly believe that the prosperity of the American Christian is drawing to a close. Listen to me. I, I, I believe this with all my heart that we are entering, we are closer to a day when you, if you are serious, if you're serious about following Christ and believing in and living according to his word, you are going to face persecution. You know, for, for so long, I get these questions from people who are studying and reading the Bible, and they would say, you know, the Bible talks all this about persecution. Why in America do we not ever really, we don't, we don't ever really experience persecution? Well, you know what? Buckle in, because it's coming. The Bible tells us all who, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And quite frankly, I, now listen to me. Don't, don't mishear me here. I'm not excited about persecution. I kind of like the freedoms that we have. I kind of like being able to preach Jesus and not being afraid. But the reality is anybody who's looking at this world with a serious eye knows it's drawn to a close. And it's not all that bad. Because here's the reality. We're about to find out who's really committed. Because it's going to become increasingly difficult to love Jesus and be friends with this world. We're about to find out who really loves Jesus and who has been following Jesus for the perks. You heard that story, that you may have heard this before, the story of the church in Russia. They were having a meeting under the cover of darkness, meeting in a room. A bunch of people gathered to worship Jesus. A group of men came in with masks, guns. They took over the service and they said, anybody who is not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you can walk out of those doors right now, no questions asked. Whole big group of people walked out the doors. As soon as those people left, the guys took off their masks, put down their guns, and said, now we can get down to business. Now we found out who's really serious. 
I'm telling you, we're entering a day where we're about to find out who's really serious about following Jesus. Who's willing to say, you know what, I found a treasure in this man Jesus that is worth more to me than anything in this world so you can take everything you want, including my life, and I won't stop following him because he's all I got. And this will be, I, I truly believe this, this is going to be our opportunity to shine. This is our opportunity to tell the world that the way of Christ is not just different, it's better. Do you believe that this morning? That the way of Christ is not just different, it is better. That to live in rebellion to Christ and his word is a path that leads to pain and ultimate destruction. And to live in accordance with God's word is a path that leads to joy and peace and life and life eternal. We have an opportunity today like never before. Satan is drawing a line in the sand. And it is our time as God's people to stand up and shine for the glory of Christ. Yeah, I, I, I debated on whether or not to share this, but just powerful story. Um, this Midwestern Journal of Theology this week, I picked up one. And in it, they, they had uh, a story. I, I'd never heard her story before, Perpetua. I don't know if you've heard of Perpetua in the third century. She was martyred for Christ. Um, the key about Perpetua is that we actually have her diaries. So she records what happened to her powerful, powerful story. Just, just, just briefly, let me share with you a little bit of her story. Number one, she was 22 years old when she came to know Jesus Christ, her personal Lord and Savior. She was married and she had just given birth to her first son. And she came to know the Lord. And in that day, severe persecution against Christians and she got baptized and her father pled with her not to get baptized because he knew the Roman authorities were watching but she did it anyway, and she made a public confession inside of the world that I love Jesus. A few days later, she was arrested, and she was brought along with some other Christians who were baptized on that day. They were brought for, before a tribunal, and they were asked to recant Christ and to offer sacrifice to the prosperity of the Roman emperor, and every one of them refused. In fact, her father, in her diary, she, re she recounts how her father pleaded with her to recant. In fact, he said, for her, if you won't do it for yourself, do it for your family. And she said, I cannot recant Christ. And so, it says, the next morning, Perpetua and her friends were escorted into the arena in Carthage. As they enter, they strode with confidence like gladiatorial champions onto the competition floor. Perpetua sang, conveying the joy she felt as a part of the chosen bride of Christ. And she and her comrades stood once again before the tribunal. And they confessed Christ together and prophetically spoke to the governor how the Lord would judge him. That's what you call boldness. Not only do we believe in Jesus, but you need to know, emperor, you're going to be judged. That's boldness. And the soldiers were summoned, and the believers were whipped for their insolence in addressing the governor. After their scourging, animals were released into the arena to the delight of the spectators. Perpetua and Felicitas were, were knocked down by an enraged bull, but both encouraged each other and stood back up. According to the narrative, Perpetua fixed her hair and her torn clothing before the next assault, demonstrating her composure even in the midst of the chaos of the arena. Eventually, as the beast wore out, the surviving believers were brought to the middle of the arena near the bodies of their friends. They gave each other the traditional kiss of peace, the greeting they would have used at church. 
And the soldiers ran them through. And Perpetua, pierced between the ribs, cried out in a loud gasp. The young soldier who ran her through looked frightened as he retracted his sword. But Perpetua, looking him straight in the eyes, guided his shaking sword to her throat as he completed her martyrdom. The account of the martyrdom of Perpetua is an incredibly special narrative that records the boldness of a woman of faith, something that the culture could not comprehend. The fact that the claims of Christ superseded everything, wealth, social status, even family, provided a testimony to the truth of Christianity that reverberated well beyond the provincial confines of North Africa. As spectacular as the death of Perpetua in AD 203 was, it was simply yet one more voice in a growing choir of men and women of all ages choosing Christ above all. Folks, this is our day to say Jesus is the greatest treasure and you can take everything we have but we won't let go of him. This is our time to shine. Then look at chapter 47, verses 29 through 31. 47, 29 through 31. When, when the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, if I found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I die, when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So he swore to him. And then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. So Jacob is nearing death. He knows what's about to happen. And he makes preparation for his burial. And he calls in Joseph, and it's this awkward deal, but it was a sacred vow that you would take, basically saying, if you don't do what you say you're going to do, my descendants will come back and get you. So you got to do this. And he wants to make sure that Joseph will take his body and take his bones back to the promised land and bury him there. Why would that be so significant? Why would that be so important to, do, to Jacob? Because Jacob wants the world to know, even in his death, that I am clinging to the faithfulness of God who made a promise to me and made a promise to my people that he will give us the promised land. And so even in his death, all the way to death, Jacob wanted to testify to the faithfulness of God that he made a promise and he will keep that promise. And that is really your fourth key. If we're going to thrive in this world, we must be faithful even to death. It is the last great step of faith. And I don't know about you, but I am trusting in the promise that God has made to me that when I take that final breath, breath and that, that, that machine flatlines, that Jesus Christ is going to be there to take me by the hand and lead me to the promised land. That he made a promise to me and God, who has always been faithful to me, won't let me down at that moment either. And don't you love this, that Joseph, uh, Jacob, um, he, he wants to make preparation for his burial, doesn't he? He knows, I'm, I'm getting up there, it's about over. And he wants, 
his son to know what to do. And he wants to make sure there's no doubt about what you need to proclaim and how to act and what to do. And this is just another good reminder to you that all of us need to make preparation for your death. I don't care how old you are. I have written out my obituary. Have you written yours? Because I don't want there to be any doubt. I don't want my family to have to labor over it. I don't want them to have to think of what to say. I want them to know, and I want them to see, and I want everybody who's there to know that there's only one person we glorify, and it's Jesus Christ. And I want the gospel to be proclaimed, because my life is nothing. I'm like Jacob. I'm nothing, but Christ is everything. And I've told my family, I don't care if they cremate me. I believe in a God who can put all those particles right back together. And he'll raise me up, and I'll have a new heavenly body. But I've told them I want a headstone. And on that headstone, I want two things. I want a cross because I want the world to know this is a guy who trusted in one thing. And it's Jesus Christ who died on the cross for his sins. And then I want three words. Read your Bible. That's all I want. Because if you read your Bible, you'll learn about the Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, and hopefully you'll come to faith in him. Read your Bible. Have you made preparation? So that you leave no doubt, even in your death, as to who and what you are and who you were trusting in. So, got to be faithful to the end. Then look and finally, Genesis 48. Final, we'll, we'll wrap this up quickly. Jacob is going to give a double blessing to Joseph. So look with me. Verse 3, then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I'll make you a company of people, and will give you this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And so here we see Jacob gives a double blessing to Joseph, even though Joseph is not the firstborn, Reuben is the firstborn, and his two sons, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh, will become two of the 12 tribes of Israel. You don't see a tribe of Joseph, you see these two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then look at verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they're my sons, God has given to me here. So Israel said, bring them to me and I will bless them. Now his eyesight was poor because of old age. He could hardly see. And Joseph brought them to him. And he kissed and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. But now God has even let me see your offspring. And what a testimony to God's faithfulness. And then look at verse 12. Then Joseph took them from his father's knees and bowed with his face to the ground. And Jacob blesses these boys. I think this is one of my favorite pictures of Jacob. Because here's the picture. Joseph thinks so much about the godliness of his dad that he says, I got to bring my boys and you got to bless them before you die. And I'm just going to tell you right here, I think this is when you've made it. I mean, I, and quite honestly, I don't know of a higher achievement that a man could achieve than for his sons to say think so highly of his walk with the Lord that before I die, my boys would say, Dad, you gotta bless my kids. And you got a picture of Grandpa putting his hands on his boys and blessing them, and you got a son bowing his head. And don't you think Ephraim and Manasseh, they never forgot this moment. 
and they got a picture of what godliness and what biblical manhood looks like. It's a grandpa who bows his head, and it's a daddy who prays. And we're a family of faith, and he passes on the blessing. And I think the same goes for you, for you ladies. I don't think there could be a, a greater achievement for a grandmother than for your children to think so highly of your walk with the Lord and your faithfulness that they would bring the kids and say, before you die, you've got to bless my kids. And that's really your final principle. Listen, if we're going to thrive in the midst of a dark world, you've got to leave a legacy. You've got to leave a legacy of faith. There's no greater work that, the God, that God has given to you than your children. If, if you don't get an opportunity to go, one of, the, um, one of the, I guess, blessings of my job is I go to a lot of funerals. And, uh, you know, Solomon said it's better to be in a house of mourning than in a house of joy. Because when you go to a funeral, guess what you're reminded of? You're reminded of what really matters, aren't you? And when you go to them funerals, guess what? They don't talk about your golf score. It don't matter to nobody. And they don't really care how high you climbed on the corporate ladder. But you get to hear about children who talk about their dad or their mom who loved them and loved Christ and left a legacy of faith. What legacy are you leaving? Your children think highly enough of you because I know a lot of kids that have grandkids and they say we can't bring them around grandpa because of his lifestyle. You don't want that. And no matter where you're at today, it's never too late to change your legacy. That's the good news. And then in, in his kind of his final act before he dies, the boys are set in front of him. Joseph puts them there. He puts Manasseh to his right hand, to Jacob's right hand. Puts Ephraim at his left hand because the oldest gets the blessing, doesn't he? And Manasseh's the oldest. And so he's going to bless these two boys. And what does Jacob do? Switches his hand. And jo Joseph is ticked. It says it. He's mad. I think Joseph is thinking, can we not leave this whole curse about the older and the younger behind? Let's just do it normal. And... What did Jacob say? Joseph says, you're making a mistake, Dad. Jacob says, no, no mistake. I know this is different, but the God we serve, he's a different God. And he's sovereign, and God has spoken, and this boy's getting a blessing. Boy, don't you know that's a daddy who's been broken by God. The trickster, the deceiver has learned, listen, when God speaks, you just be faithful. You be obedient. You be set apart. You be distinct. Do you see what we're going to have to be if we're going to thrive in this world? We better dig in our heels and commit ourselves to walking in God's ways no matter what. You know, I was studying this this week. I told Pastor Jim in the first service, I am... Um, so I, I had my dog with me this week, and, it, you know, every dog now in our life, we compare to a dog that the fruits have named Hunter. So they had this dog named Hunter, and Hunter, when they purchased him, that, you know, his kids were younger, and, and they were taking a trip, I believe y'all purchased, and they, they just held, that dog was probably held, it probably was held in arms more than it was on the ground for probably three months. That dog was always being held and sleeping with them everywhere they went, they held... And I'm going to tell you, that dog was half human. 
He would go out. I'd go pick up Jim to come to church. And that dog would go out and get the newspaper for him. Now, that's when you got a dog, all right? Go out there, get the newspaper, take it inside. That dog knew. I mean, he was, he was half human. But I'm going to tell you the best trick, the most amazing trick that dog had. You could take that. Jim would take that dog, and he would take a piece of steak. Steak. Juicy steak. I saw him do it. And he would take Hunter's mouth, and he would hold his mouth, and he'd take that piece of steak, and he'd set it right on Hunter's nose. And he would say, Hunter, don't you eat that steak. And Hunter wouldn't flinch. I was convinced that the dog would have starved to death if, Jesus, if John hadn't, <laughs> Jim hadn't told him to eat. Now, did that dog have dog desires? Oh, yeah. Did he want to eat that piece of steak? You bet he did. Why didn't he eat that steak? Because I believe that dog knew every good thing I have in my life comes from these folks. And I trust this man. And if he tells me not to eat, see, he was living on a higher plane. As I would say it, he wasn't living according to law. He was living according to grace. He was so in love with his master that he was willing to deny his fleshly desires and live in perfect obedience knowing that his way was best. Folks, that's the believer. Do we still have some fleshly desires? Coming to faith in Christ does not eradicate sin. You know what it does? It eradicates the power of sin, that we don't have, we don't have to say yes to sin anymore. We still have fleshly desires, but we live on a higher plane, don't we? We live on the basis of a new relationship with God and a higher love. And we know that when he says no, it's the best way to live. And so we turn away to, from our flesh and we turn towards him in obedience and we dig in our heels. Folks, we got to live differently. We must be bold. We must shine. We must be faithful to the end. And we got to leave a legacy. Now, let me lead you, leave you with a poem I love. I've read it before. It's one of my favorites. Boy, I thought it capsulized, kind of summarized this better than anything I could say. It's from B.J. Morbitzer. He said this, I'm a soldier in the army of God. The Lord Jesus is my commanding officer. The Holy Bible is my code of conduct. Faith, prayer, and the word are my weapons of warfare. I've been taught by the Holy Spirit, trained by experience, tried by adversity, and tested by fire. I'm a volunteer in this army, and I'm enlisted for eternity. I will either retire in this army at the rapture or die in this army, but I will not get out, sell out, be talked out, or pushed out. I am faithful, reliable, capable, and dependable. If my God needs me, I am there. If he needs me in the Sunday school to teach the children, to work with the youth, help adults, or just sit and learn, he can use me because I am there. I am a soldier. I am not a baby. I don't need to be pampered, uh, petted, primed up, pumped up, picked up, or pepped up. I am a soldier. No one has to call me, remind me, write me, visit me, entice me, or lure me. I am a soldier. I'm not a wimp. I'm in my place, saluting my king, obeying his orders, praising his name, and building his kingdom. No one has to send me flowers, gifts, food, cards, candy, or give me handouts. I do not need to be cuddled, cradled, cared for, or catered to. I am committed. I cannot have my feelings hurt bad enough to turn me around. I cannot be discouraged enough to turn aside. I cannot lose enough to cause me to quit. When Jesus called me into this army, I had nothing. If I end up with nothing, I will still come out ahead. I will win. 
My God has and will continue to supply all of my need. I am more than a conqueror. I will always triumph. I can do all things through Christ. The devil cannot defeat me. People cannot disillusion me. Weather cannot weary me. Sickness cannot stop me. Battles cannot beat me. Money cannot buy me. Governments cannot silence me. And hell cannot handle me. I am a soldier. Even death cannot destroy me. For when my commander calls me from this battlefield, he will promote me to captain and then allow me to rule with him. I am a soldier in the army and I am marching claiming victory. I will not give up. I will not run around. I am a soldier marching heaven bound. That, that is who we are. Living distinct, being bold, shining like stars, faithful to the end, and leaving a legacy. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that speaks so relevantly to our lives. God, I'm so grateful for the example of Jacob, not a perfect man. We have seen this is a guy who stumbled and fell, but he kept getting back up because of a God who would not let go of him. And he testifies to the faithfulness of God and of a man who said, I will not let go of God until he blesses me. God, I pray that we would be a people who cling to you no matter the cost. That we would live holy and distinct lives no matter the ridicule, no matter how alluring the world and its little trinkets might be. We'll live distinct. We'll be holy. We'll store up treasure in heaven and not here on earth. Father, I pray that we would be a people who would be bold, God, I pray we wouldn't back down when opportunities arise and the door is opened and we have a chance to speak of Christ who saved us. Give us boldness. God, I pray that we would shine as the days grow darker, as the world around us decays. I pray that we would be a people who shine, who thrive spiritually and display to the world that there's something greater There's a treasure that's more valuable than anything this world can offer. I pray that we would be faithful to the end. We would never coast. We'd run to the tape, even in our death, testifying to the grace of God. And I pray that we would leave a legacy. God, help us to invest in our children and to make the way of Christ so appealing that they would desire Jesus and know the joy of walking in fellowship with him. And God, I pray right now for somebody who might be watching online, maybe in this room, and they don't know you, and they think we're crazy. They wonder, why in the world would you live that way? And maybe it's because they've never met Jesus. Maybe it's because they've never understood the depth of their sin. They've never understood that just like us, they're a sinner. And maybe they've never understood that as a sinner, all they deserve, just like us, is the wrath of God. And maybe they've never contemplated why Christ came. He came to die in their place, to take their punishment, to absorb the wrath of God, to to drink the full cup of God's wrath on the cross so that through faith in Jesus, they could have new life. And I pray today they would trust in you. They would be reborn and transformed by the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. 
set down a new path, a path that leads to life and life eternal. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.